0: Hey, this is Jeff Finley, and you're listening to the Maker Mistaker Podcast. Today on the show, I've got a very special guest, Leandra Vane, author of Trophy Wife. It's one of my new favorite books, actually, and it covers the topics of sexuality, disability, and femininity, and so much more. And it's one of the most honest and vulnerable books I've ever read. And I'm super excited to bring her on the show. Um, but first, one quick update from me. I'm actually recording an audiobook of Wake up I found a way to be able to distribute my audiobook on Audible and iTunes and Amazon. And that is pretty awesome. So I just got to narrate the book myself. Or I can hire a narrator, but you know me. I'm kind of a DIY person. I'll just do it myself. Figure it out. Get it out there. And it'll be up there soon, hopefully before the holidays. But um yeah, anyway. So Leandra, I discovered her work. She's got a blog called the com. Let me give, give you her bio real quick. Leandra Vane writes a sexuality and book review blog entitled The Unlaced Librarian. Topics that she tackles include body identity, disability, relationship styles. She loves literature and changes the names of her lipstick shades to suit her muse. <laughs> um, but how I discovered her was so about six to eight months ago, probably maybe a year ago, I was doing a lot of research on uh, pornography. So anti-porn, pro-porn. It was super interesting to me. So Leandra wrote, she had her own personal viewpoints on her blog, and I stumbled across it, and it made it so relatable and so authentic that I was just immediately drawn to her work. So I kept reading and following her work, her blog, and her book reviews on YouTube. So I found out some more books to read on the subject through her YouTube channel, and I've been kind of following her and and being in touch with her ever since. And then she just announced that she released a book called Trophy Wife, Sexuality, Disability, and Femininity, and it was... I just finished it uh, yesterday and it was honestly one of the best books I've ever read. And before I introduce her, I'm going to read you my review that I posted on Goodreads just to give you a summary of this book and what it meant to me. So I said, one of the best books I've read in a while, such honest and intimate writing. It was so relatable and I found myself feeling inspired and hopeful for my own sexual coming of age in my 30s. We may not all have the same challenges, but are all passing, in quotes, in some form or another, meaning we try to fit into society and be normal, but are hiding our true selves underneath fear and shame. Leandra puts this struggle into such beautiful words. She doesn't hold back, and she has the courage to talk about such taboo subjects with intelligence and vulnerability, and I can't recommend this book enough for anyone who's trying to be more authentic and true to themselves. So, having said that... Leandra Vane, welcome to the Make a Mistaker podcast.
1: Wow, I'm so stoked to be here. Thank you so much.
0: Definitely. So, um, how do you feel being uh, putting putting out your sexual memoir?
1: You know, it's been a relief. I think going up, and there was a time period when I was editing and and uh, uh, getting the book ready for publication. And I was just absolutely terrified I'd wake up in the middle of the night and look at myself in the mirror and think you're not actually going to do this right like you're crazy. And so now that it's out there no take backs I'm really relieved and I'm really happy that I was able to to do it so something I've been meaning to do for a very long time so.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) that's I'm so proud so congratulations on that it's not easy to write. I know like when I wrote wake up, it was a very personal story of me and I had to admit things like just I had to admit that I was depressed. So it's sort of the public, you know. Um, right. So it's like a coming out of some sort of thing that we feel ashamed about and we're putting this big thing out into the world. So to us, it's like this epic giant step, <laughs> you know, so I could totally relate.
1: Yeah. And like once it gets out there, you just kind of realize that you shed the light on it and this big, scary thing you thought was going to be is actually something that's helping you connect with people and doing so much more good and um, enlightening than it ever the bad things could have ever done to you so yeah it's definitely a perspective change You're actually having it out there
0: yeah so could you tell us in your own words the story behind your book
1: well um, I was born with a physical disability so um, I. I wear leg braces and I have all kinds of other issues. I can't feel half of my body. I've had some of my organs reconstructed with my small intestines. So fun things like that. So I've always kind of had a different perspective on things, kind of society. Even people that were very close to me were always kind of dictating things that I couldn't do or things that I should do. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I've also been really interested in sexuality and relationships, even, I guess, as soon as really early as middle school i remember thinking these things um understanding that sexuality really plays a role in our identity and in our our relationships but i was always kind of taught that those aren't things that you're supposed to talk about and also with my disability i was kind of taught to minimize the appearance of my disability and so i wanted to minimize that as a part of my identity as well so here i am cutting back two really interesting and huge parts of my identity my my disability and my interest in well, I was in my early 20s and I just, I was going to explode. I i was censoring myself for my, my fiction and my nonfiction writing. I was a freelance writer and I wasn't writing any of this stuff because I was so afraid that I would offend people that I knew. And so eventually I just decided I had to have an outlet. So I started my blog, Family Librarian and that worked for a little while. But I soon realized that I had to take it a step further and really go where I was afraid to go and write this book that I had in my head basically since around high school I'd always wanted to write about sex and disability so eventually I just wrote it and it took about two years and I just published it last month so yeah Yeah,
0: that's awesome and what what has been the reaction so far
1: well I haven't really had many people read it yet most people that have gotten it they haven't finished it yet so I think you're the first one to finish it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> actually. So um, you read a lot faster than a lot of people I know. But um, I actually recently came out to my friends and family and my coworkers. actually. They don't know my pen name, but I did tell them that I'm a sex writer and this is a really big part of my identity and what I do. And surprisingly, the reactions from my friends and family have been really encouraging. They've been able to say, even though they don't really understand why I would want to pursue a career or my interest in this, that they're still supportive. And a lot of people, my friends and family included, that know about the book have actually said that they're not going to read it. They feel that that's kind of a boundary issue for them. So I'm kind of left in an odd place where most of the people consuming my work are strangers or people I don't personally know. So kind of an odd thing, but I respect that boundary.
0: Yeah, and who knows? They they've got the rest of their life to to read it if they want to. So
1: <laughs> and they'll probably just read it and not tell me because they like I don't know. They're like, oh, I didn't read it. Of course not.
0: Oh, that's and they true. So. <laughs> yeah. they'll read it until they get to the chapter on shit, and then they'll be like, okay, I'm done.
1: <laughs>
0: <I gotta> go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so okay, let's talk about shit for now that we're on that subject. So yeah, you have, let's
2: talk about
0: shit. You have a whole t- a whole chapter in there about um like shit so (laughs) and how it relates to like your disability and these are things that's like okay look people don't talk about this stuff people joke about it it's okay to make funny jokes but if you're serious about it it's like total turn off you don't ever talk about it it's super shameful but and it's created some really embarrassing and traumatic situations in your life and gosh good lord i mean god knows if i ever had to deal with any of that i would be mortified too so but (laughs) you, you handled it so well so, yeah, tell us, talk about shit, tell us, <laughs> give us a deal. Right?
1: Um, well, I, of course, I was born with, with nerve damage, and a lot of people that have nerve damage, they, they're born with what's called a nervous bowel or nervous bladder, so I can't always control those things. My I call them my B&B issues, my bowel and bladder issues, actually, mm-hmm. but people that have many different conditions or as they get older, or if they um, undergo a treatment for something, they can often have these issues. So, um, it's not just people with nerve damage, there's there's many different people that will find themselves at one point or another not being able to control their shit. And So I find it interesting because in almost any discussion of intimacy or sexuality, that is like not talked about. And that Mm -hmm. was one of the biggest issues because it's always there. It's like you want to go on a date, but are you going to have dinner? Are you going to stay out late? Like all these things completely mess with my schedule because I literally have to have a schedule down to a T, down to like the hour um, of when I eat, when I sleep so that I can have more control. And dating and sex just throws a huge wrench in that so I write a lot about that and also it's it's a very intimate aspect of of yourself because it's embarrassing and of course I had this ever since I was born. So in elementary school, middle school, high school, I dealt with it and it's not very sexy when you have a bladder spasm. Nobody wants to be the kid that like pisses themselves in homeroom. <laughs> no,
2: <laughs> really
1: no. not a good reputation. So It was, like, a huge secret, and I tried to control it in any way I could. I developed these weird OCD behaviors because I thought, like, if medication and stuff weren't controlling it, maybe I needed to try harder. Like, my mind bullets could somehow make my nerves speak to each other. I don't know. But it took me a really long time to come to terms with that, and especially in the realm of sexuality because it's so closely related to that. Um, Because accidents happen, and... A lot of people, I think, were like me. You don't want to initiate a sexual encounter. You don't want to initiate a sexual or a date or anything like that because you're basically afraid that you're going to have a problem. You're going to mm-hmm. have a bladder yeah. spasm or you're going to shit yourself in the restaurant. It's really stressful. So, And you have to be honest with your partners about that. And that's not something you really want to tell upfront to a potential date that you've only seen like three or four times. So I talk about navigating that and it's really complicated, but I hope I managed to do it in a way that's somewhat organized.
0: Oh, yeah. Not only organized, but just like you made me really understand what it was like and and actually made me feel more at ease with just some of the the silly stuff that we worry about, but we never talk about. You know, I I mean, just embarrassed to fart while you're having sex. (laughs) I mean, that's like... So common, but no one talks about it. And if you do, it's like, how do you react? I mean, this is, this is also silly, but I mean, I'm 33 years old and I feel like I'm still a child in a lot of these ways where I haven't matured enough to feel comfortable talking about this openly with a partner. And it shows that I still have some shame around some of these issues. And what you, what your book did was brought my awareness to it, but then also made me feel like it's, it's going to be okay. It's actually safe. It's, it's okay to, be able to talk about it and it's not the end of the world so right and and
1: I think that that's that was the thing too is that I wanted to keep it a secret I didn't want to talk about it but essentially I had no choice Um, once I started dating my husband and we were together for more than you know three months I had to talk about it because I wasn't going to be able to hide it forever so it was scary but it was necessary and I just I just hope that if anyone is having that a similar problem that they can at least know that they're not alone and I can talk about it in a little bit more detail then well I haven't really even read I don't think a book that really confronts that issue I'm looking but I haven't really found one so
0: oh yeah so that's just one taboo subject what are some other ones that you cover
1: well um, I do talk about porn <laughs> mm-hmm. Um You kind of touched on that earlier. I talk about having an open relationship, which Mm -hmm. is something that is somewhat taboo. There's a lot of books on open relationships, though. Also, um, one of the things that I cover in one of the chapters is about my femininity. I feel as a woman with a visible disability that acting feminine or presenting myself as feminine is actually a rebellious act. I kind of feel that a lot of people win the wrong, quote-unquote wrong, female tries to be feminine, that it's wrong. Like maybe she's fat or maybe she's transgendered or like me, disabled. And so our femininity is like subverted or mocked or kind of dismissed. I was always told like, oh, you're just one of the guys and, you know, you should be androgynous or whatever. And I'm like, no, I want to be feminine. So I really feel like I had to fight for feminine identity, even though I was born biologically female. And -hmm. that's something that a lot of people – I try to explain that to them, and they don't really get it. They're like, well, you look like a girl to me, and I'm like, I understand that, but I feel like I wasn't always treated as though my femininity or my sexuality were ever even acknowledged. So, I write about that.
0: Yeah, can you tell us like how, more about how that feels to inside, on an emotional level?
1: Yeah, it's it's really weird, because I always, I at least when I got to college, I felt like um I was one of the guys that's the comment that I got all the time and I hung out with with a lot of guy friends um and they treated me differently I don't think I wrote about this in the book I cut it but one of the stories I told is that this one time I got a dick pic from somebody and I casually mentioned it to my guy friends and they were mortified they were like why would why would this why would he do this blah 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 and I realized that they were mortified Not because he sent me a dick pic, but because they saw me as one of the guys and they wouldn't want a dick pic being sent to them just Mm -hmm. like that blatantly. And so it made me realize just how much of one of the guys I was because guys could treat me a certain way and it wouldn't be a big deal or it would be a big deal. But if they did it to another woman, it would just be normal. So it was kind of odd. I felt like a spy, like I felt like I could kind of see how men really did view women, um, the, the negatives and the positives, by being a woman that was just one of the guys. So a lot of the experience actually was really enlightening for me as a sociologically minded person to kind of see the inner workings of this male group when I was in college. But it was also very frustrating because I felt that I was being dismissed my ideas and my thoughts were being dismissed because I wasn't even really seen as a person. I was asexual. So I could have my ideas and my thoughts acknowledged if I was one of the guys, but as soon as I tried to be feminine, I was just completely dismissed. People didn't even know how to how to take it. So it's really hard to explain, but I feel that actually being identified in a sexual way in our culture is actually important for you to be taken seriously or to be given respect. If
0: that makes any sense, yeah, so you were you were obviously a very sexual person inside ever for, ever since you were like a you know early teenager you've been sneaking off to read erotica literature <laughs> and you know you found out you could think yourself off and have orgasms without even touching yourself. I thought that was pretty yeah. amazing um so you but you you had to kind of keep that stuff a secret because if you let out that you were a sexual person, people who saw you as just like disabled were kind of what how did they feel about that?
1: um really put off i think i um i actually i was very flirtatious both in high school and in college i i flirted a lot and i was always the one to be like giving guys my number and like let's go on a date let's hang out and i called myself the one date wonder because like i went on a ton of dates but they just never really ever went anywhere Mm -hmm. and a lot of people ended up or a lot of guys especially just kind of said you know oh well you know you're like a sister to me i couldn't do that to you like and it was just so strange And I was like okay whatever and um but yeah but I I did keep a lot of it underground but a lot of that might have just been that I was reading kinky you know gay erotica on the internet and I didn't know anybody else that did that so I just uh-huh. decided to keep that quiet
0: <laughs> yeah you had a, a really compelling anecdote where you were you weren't allowed to go to recess unless you could put your boots on can you tell us about that story
1: Yeah, so in elementary school one year, um, they were really on a kick to get me to do things independently, you know, let's not help you, you need to do it for yourself, which I understand, and that's great, but I couldn't get my snow boots on, and there was some stupid rule that even if there wasn't snow on the ground, for a certain amount of time, you had to have snow boots on, and I couldn't do it by myself, so my teacher told me I had to stay inside, And not only could I not stay inside in the classroom, the teacher had recess duty, so I had to stay in, like, the foyer, this, like, unheated foyer. Um, And I could hear everything going on outside. Like, I could hear the pinging of the basketballs and the the jump ropes and all that. And so I would just sit there, and I didn't know what to do. I felt like such a failure, even in elementary school, that I couldn't take care of myself. And that's something that I think stayed with me throughout my whole life. I, I had always been very independently driven. But um I finally realized that I could hide a book in my coat. Hmm. And so I turned that 20 minutes a day into the best day, the best time of my day because I could just read. And so and allow me to escape and get outside of my body, get outside of my situation, get outside of all these things that I couldn't do. And so for a long time, books were a way to, to get out of my body. And later when I discovered erotica that was how I came back to my body because then I was experiencing things in my body and my presence and my um, awareness of what was happening inside of my body was so important to what I was reading that these books that I've been using to escape my body now became what brought me back into my body and that's when I kind of started realizing that I can experience my sexuality I can be present in the moment, even with the limitations that I have, so yeah,
0: yeah. So that was your. You started reading. So, wait. So what books were you reading in the hallway in the foyer there?
1: Oh, just pretty much typical elementary school. I read a lot of Nancy Drew. I read a lot of, um, what is it, the, the Sweet Valley Twins. Uh huh. I read like all those
0: <laughs> um, at what point did you get into erotica then once you got the internet?
1: Yeah, our, our family got a computer when I was 13 and I was left in the house. I think 24 hours or less with it by myself when I looked up erotic fan fiction on the internet. And at first I read like straight stories for like a week and then I found some mail-on-mail stories and then I never went back. I read that pretty much exclusively. So I was given like 45 minutes every night to read uh, or to be on the internet. My mom thought I was chatting with my friends and I was like reading hardcore erotic fiction. (laughs) (laughs) thirteen, But the funny thing about that is, is that um, I read the fan fiction and the erotic fiction online up into my early 20s and into college. And a lot of the people that are writing that are, you know, teenage girls and, and young women. So I really found kind of that community of these of these women who were a lot like me who were writing and reading this this fan fiction. So
0: could you clarify real quick what fan fiction is? I'm not familiar too familiar with the term.
1: Oh, fan fiction is when people take characters from books or movies and they write them into their own storylines. So one of okay. the really popular ones is like Harry Potter Um but there there's fan fiction for pretty much anything you're interested in. There's fan fiction for it.
0: So <laughs> And yeah. then they put them in sexual situations?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Like oh,
0: my God. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine some awesome Harry Potter um fan fiction erotica. <laughs> oh yeah. So but but before you found erotica, you you said you, you searched for porn and kind of had a rude awakening there.
1: Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So the first thing that I looked for on the internet was, was pornography. I didn't actually look for the stories. I looked for porn and it was back before like a lot of, I don't know. It it, it wasn't very, there were a lot of like streaming movies or anything. But anyway, mm-hmm. the first site that popped up was like just, I just remember there was like six boxes and they were all these women getting their face come like all over. Mm-hmm. and I was just so, like, turned off. I'm like, well, I don't want that at all, and I didn't know what ejaculation was. Like, I had gone through, like, three years of sex ed in, in school, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, Um, but I didn't know what ejaculation was. they never used that term, so I was really kind of freaked out because I'm like, that's what happens? Okay, no, I don't <laughs> want that, and so I really didn't look... At porn again until I was in my early 20s in, in college because I was just that turned off by it but I, I read the stories instead so
0: yeah and so now that we're on the topic of porn you want to talk about like your evolution of what how porn was into your life and out of your life and how you came back to it and everything
1: sure so obviously I, I didn't look at the porn um, mm-hmm. when I was in high school but in college, I kind of realized that I was—I had these kinky thoughts. So a lot of the porn that I looked up um, was, was kink. It wasn't really traditional porn. There wasn't any penetration. A lot of times there wasn't even any nudity. It was like bondage um, or like discipline situations, very kinky things. Um, but I was actually okay with porn for a while until I got with uh, the man who had become my husband. And... Um, a lot of things happened. I mean, I was in the most secure, stable, healthy relationship I'd ever been in. And so I was started to get really jealous. I started to get possessive. I didn't want to lose that relationship. So one of the things that he casually used was, was porn. And one of the things was they were actually texts on his cell phone. His friends would send him, like, they were called the boobs of the day. So every day he got a pair of boobs, and he showed them to me. That's how I knew. Mm. What it, what <laughs> what they were there yeah and i just got angry i was like you know i don't like this i'm not supposed to like this so stop and everybody i talked to they're like yeah he's wrong if you don't like him he should just stop so i told him you need to stop and he's like i'm not doing anything wrong i'm showing this to you i'm not gonna stop and i was just kind of dumbfounded because i'm like well you're supposed to stop like like this isn't right like so I was really confused. I'm like, does he want porn more than me? Like I was, I I didn't know what to do. Yeah. That situation
0: was interesting because (laughs) he, his reaction doesn't seem to be very typical. Like I think a lot of husbands (laughs) or boyfriends would be ashamed and they would be so apologetic and they would be like, I'm sorry. I'm the worst boyfriend ever. I mean, that's how I was when I was caught. When I admitted that I looked at porn, she, when she found out that I looked at porn, she had a very similar reaction and I, had the opposite reaction that your husband did I was more mortified and ashamed of it and promised I'd never do it again <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. and um, and I'm not sure if I actually put this part in the in the book but um, you told me that you know I I don't want to hide this from you and and whatnot but um, what ended up happening is we ended up like arguing about like well, would you rather me hide it and I'm like yeah just just like don't ask don't tell but then that backfired because then I found it and I was 10 times more angry and yeah, it was just really bad. But, yeah, but he, um, no, he stood his ground. He said, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm showing this to you. I'm not comparing you to other women. And he didn't, I mean, I never ever got from him that he was unsatisfied with me or with our sex life or anything. Mm -hmm. He just randomly enjoyed having the boobs of the day or that kind of, whatever. And I was just really pissed off. Um, so I looked up a bunch of articles about pornography and I only clicked on the ones that were anti-porn. Like I refused to read any pro porn articles. So I kind of got like swamped down with these things. Like he doesn't really love you and he's like addicted and like whatever, which is totally not true. He had like, you know, a handful of boobs of the day on his phone. That was pretty much it. And, So the whole process was I just kind of realized that I had to look at our unique situation and and decide what I was going to do. So I ended up taking some Hustler magazines and actually having like my own therapy session. I would sit there with the magazine and just like cry and just feel all the hurt and the anger and the frustration. And then once that was gone, I would actually look at what was happening in the pictures, think, you know, what what needs are these fulfilling? Is this really as much of a big deal as I think it is? And then I just kind of had to start processing everything.
0: Yeah, that was so such an awesome, compelling scene that you painted there. It's like, well, you had asked your husband to go get some get these Hustler magazines for like some project you were working on in college, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So they I had had them for like three years. Yeah. And I'd asked him originally to get them for me and he did and that was before I I developed these issues cuz we yeah. we'd only been dating I don't even know like 3 or 4 months when he got those for me. So um yeah. it was he was kind of confused too because I'd been fine with it and then all of a sudden I wasn't fine with it. And he was kind of like why I don't understand, but it was because I had basically found that I had insecurity about losing our relationship. So
0: yeah. yeah. I feel like you could have gone two different ways there. You could have said, no, I'm standing my ground. I'm right. All of these anti-porn articles validate everything that's wrong with the world, basically. And you could have put that on your husband. But you didn't. You like took it upon yourself to face your fear of... Of, of this whole thing, and you sat down with these magazines and had like this little crisis moment. I thought was <laughs> it was like the most like sad, but like powerful picture. I was imagining you crying and looking at porn, something... <laughs> <laughs>
1: looking at porn, and like and I can I can still see myself. it I, I'm so far removed from it now, but I remember like I don't know, like I wish I could just have like a snapshot of me with like ice cream and porn and like having this epic issue, but. <laughs> But for me, I mean, even at that time, I was still interested in sex and relationships. And I told myself, I'm like, you're holding yourself back. Whether you like this or not, pornography is a huge, huge thing in society today. Everyone deals with it. And if you really want to um, to learn about this, to go out and, and help people, then you need to get a grip and be able to talk about it without bursting into tears. So for me, that was my motivation. I decided whether or not I come out of this. Pro porn or anti porn, liking it or not, hating it or loving it, I still need to at least confront it.
0: Yeah, and so where'd you find? Where'd you find?
1: I found that it really wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Um, we ended up looking up some moving videos online, and all the anti porn things that I had read, they said horrible things, They're like, you know, any porn you look up, it's just going to be violence against women, and there's not going to be any kissing, and the wom- woman is never going to be in a position of power. But we looked up these videos, and I'm like, there's kissing, there's women on top, there's all different kind of body identities and representations if you know where to look. And so I guess I just realized that kind of this lie that I'd been told about pornography wasn't true. And that pretty much changed my perspective. And that was the thing, too, is that, you know, I think a lot of anti-porn proponents, they're talking to people who don't have a lot of experience with porn. Like I said, I hadn't looked at porn all through high school, all through college, except for like my kinky porn that didn't have any nudity in it. So when I think about traditional porn, I just saw like these horrible men like penetrating innocent victim women in like terrible, terrible, violent situations. And what I found for the majority of that was not true. Am I saying that it's not out there, like rape scenes and stuff aren't out there? No, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying for the majority of stuff that you find on the internet for free, that's not the case.
0: Yeah, I mean there's there's so many different genres and so many different fetishes and all that kind of stuff. And and it is terrifying if you don't when you don't understand it. I mean I for I know myself, I go through these processes, these phases where I'm like initially disturbed. And then when I research it or look into it, I like I can see more of the humanity in it. And there was a point where, like, my own shame about looking at porn that I had received from, you know, the women I had been with and my upbringing and religion and all this kind of stuff. And the feminist movement that said that men who look at porn are bad and they don't love their girlfriends and all this kind of stuff. So it's like I felt the shame for looking at it. So that translated into finding validation online from like sources that said why I why porn is bad, so then I could agree with them and then feel better about myself so I can avoid it, you know, and not feel so much shame. But the real power came when I started to listen to the pro-porn material, the people that had intelligent discussions on what was the actual content, intelligent discussions on love and relationships and how porn is in the society and everything like that. And there was a book that you recommended called Making Peace with Porn, and I bought that. And I read it, and it was like scary for me to read. That was my moment where I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm, either, I'm at a crossroads here." I had been like trying to quit porn for so long, and now here's this. Opp- I'm reading this book, and there's part of me that's saying that this is a conspiracy of the porn industry that's trying to get me to stay a customer. It's, you know, all of this kind of other talk is is still in my brain. And yet, there's this other part that's saying this is a liberation, this is freedom. You know, this is healing. I can process this. So, I think through your honest writing and the work that you recommend and other stuff, I start to see the humanity in the actual porn performers and the directors and the fans, the people that watch it, it takes the charge out of it. And I realize it has everything to do with my own shame inside, not the porn industry, but how I feel inside about my sexuality.
1: Right. Because what I, I've kind of come is to to realize or to back about it is that we can have ethical pornography, we can have ethical distribution of pornography. And we can have people that, um, writers, directors, producers, that are, that are just putting out awesome artistic work that is, is, is gonna help people come to terms with their sexuality, to help them express their sexuality. We have pornography that's aimed toward women and couples and things like that. But if we continue to hype the stigma around porn, then the people that need that porn or the people that are making good ethical porn aren't going to have a voice. So to me, I think that the fact that we are having these conversations like the James Dean thing, it's gone everywhere. Like there's there's articles, there's people talking about it. And that's a great breakthrough, I think, because if it was still so stigmatized and it was still so evil, quote unquote, we wouldn't even be able to have that kind of a conversation. So I think that there's a lot of good to, to be had by getting people to be less afraid of pornography and to figure it out for themselves how it works in their life.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree that that awareness and knowledge and self exploration is such the key because as long as you keep it hidden and 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 a taboo, we're never going to grow and learn from it's going to continue to get pushed into the shadows of our lives and therefore have more likely have a chance to be more violent and subversive and shameful. But if you bring it into the light, you know, the light of your awareness and kind of surround it in and acceptance and love and understanding, it 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 makes it better for everyone.
1: Yeah, but it's important, I think, and I I just I still stand by the idea that pornography and erotica and erotic materials can't add a lot to intimate relationships to marriage. So I'll continue to say that now, and especially now because I watch more porn than my husband does. So that's quite a bit of a <laughs> a revolution, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, I actually I totally agree. I think the topics that I've had with the women in my life about porn and about sex have actually been way more liberating and way more like bringing us closer together than if yeah. we just ignored it. Like it's totally it's it, cuz you by admitting some of the things that you like sexually, you are putting yourself in a vulnerable position and that vulnerability creates a bond between the two of you. It's like if they accept oh, yeah. you for who you are, and like there's this relief of like oh my gosh it's okay to like this kind of porn like it's it's fine you're not going to hate me and then right. you feel like more connected to your partner it's like if you bring it in like that i think it's it does a beautiful thing for relationships it's a perfect uh catalyst for enlightenment if if you will
1: oh yeah cuz i mean it i think what porn does is it just it shines a light on our insecurities and the and So if you watch porn, you're having an emotional reaction. Those are the conversations you need to be having with your partner. Those are things that are going to come up um, later in life when porn isn't around. You don't have porn to blame, but that insecurity is still there. And then that's going to lead to a really big problem. So for us, that was really great because we were able to talk through things using pornography as a context to talk about those really hard things so that later in life, we'd figured those things out so they weren't going to threaten our our relationship so
0: yeah that's good that's great yeah so leandra let me shift gears here and talk more about the disability part um you started you started a youtube channel uh way back when youtube first was young and (laughs) you started yes you had some opinions and yeah tell us about that and, and how the disability played a role
1: oh so um i didn't have many friends when i was 18 and so i made a youtube channel and i just talked about stupid things that whatever because this was back before youtube really even had a big following so there were just these people that did video logs and they like smoked and talked about their day and then they had like all these followers (laughs) so i was really excited to do that and i just blogged about really weird things but one day i showed my brace on a video because i had a decal on the plastic. It was a pirate flag because I was 18 and I liked pirates. And all of a sudden my video had like 20,000 views. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. All my other videos have like 100 views. And who cares what I have to say? Well, I looked in, there was a referring site and I clicked on it and my video had been posted on a, a site for disability fetishists. So people were commenting like, oh, that's a beautiful brace. Like, where did you find it? Oh, I love it. And I was so confused. I didn't understand. So when I was referred to this fetish site, I was like mortified because I'm like, oh, it's a fetish. And there was an ad for a sex toy in the corner. So I was like, oh, my God, my face is on a porn site and I'm 18 and like, what's going to happen? And I was really upset Mm -hmm. because I had no idea that they're called devotees and devotees have different um there's different, I guess, shades or levels of devotees. Some are attracted to people with disabilities. Some um, feel like they want to be disabled themselves. There's different There's different kinds of devotees. But
0: mm-hmm. the ones I'm
1: specifically talking about are ones that are attracted to disability. Um, it doesn't really matter. Well, yeah, I'll just say that. They're attracted to, to disability, and so some people call them disability fetishes. Mm-hmm. So, I got really mad, and I started to, like, argue with everyone on the internet about devotees. Like, I would just, like, seek out, like, articles, and, like, I posted some videos, and I was basically calling every devotee on the planet evil and childish, and that didn't really go over very well. Um, So, I ended up taking down (laughs) all my videos, and... um, I made enough, some people mad enough that they were actually, like, threatening me to, like, find out where I lived and come find me and stuff. But wow. I was being really mean, too. Um, but I was 18, and I'd never heard of disability fetishists. And I had, you know, really sex-negative um, attitudes where I lived. Um, I'd never really heard of any other fetishists before, so I was just really confused and angry. And all I knew was sex is bad, and my disability was icky, so why would anybody want it? anyway and it was just a whole mess of things yeah so that's kind of the backstory of that whole thing
0: yeah so devotees is that just the word that describes people who are fans of disability or is it like other fetishes or what how did that what does that term come from
1: um i'm not i'm not exactly sure about the the exact history of the word but as far as i know devos or devotees um are strictly used to talk about disability fetishes. Yeah. Um, there are like devos, they're like women devos, so like they like men who are disabled. Um, but then there are also men who like women that are disabled. There's some people that like specific disabilities. So there's amputee devotees, people that are attracted to people with amputations. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of disability bloggers, like if you're in a wheelchair or if you have an amputation or whatever, um, will have probably had a run in with devotees people that are like emailing them asking them like can you show yourself transferring out of your chair or things like that most disability bloggers are pretty much aware of devotees Um, there's also other discussions like body identity integrity disorder where people actually feel like they should have a limb removed or they should be disabled and there's devotee fiction so people will write fiction on the internet about able-bodied people getting with disabled people or people who are attracted to disability getting with someone who's disabled Mm -hmm. it's just like another genre of erotica so it comes up in a lot of different ways on the internet i guess
0: yeah so this You felt mortified when you found these people that had the fetish for disability, you felt sort of objectified and mortified, but there was a time in your life when you felt like you wanted to be objectified, and it actually made you feel good. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, it was really confusing because um, when I was trying to be seen as feminine, I signed up for a kind of like a sexuality fetish website where you could post profile pictures. So I posted some pictures of myself, like in in like lingerie, and I got all these compliments. And I just couldn't believe that people were saying these things about me. That, um, oh, you're you're a knockout, you're hot, da da da. And I remember feeling like I wanted that, like I craved that simple objectification, just like that, that just I want your body and nothing else kind of thing. Yeah. So I was like confused because I'm like I shouldn't be wanting this but I do want this. I want to be desired in that way. And I don't know if it's because in real life, I never got compliments. I mean, if I was with a group of friends, all of my girlfriends would get hit on and I would just kind of be left in the corner. No one ever made compliments about my outfits. Like if we went out somewhere, all my friends, oh, you look so nice. And nobody would ever say that to me. So I guess it was like the pendulum swinging the other way that Mm -hmm. I could be objectified in a certain way but I was also really upset because I was hiding my disability when I when I took those pictures none of my scars were visible my braces weren't visible none of the the signifiers of my disability were visible in these pictures so in one way I was empowered but in another way I was even more depressed because I'm like the only way I can be desired is if I don't have a visible disability
0: Mm.
1: so I was really confused (laughs)
0: Yeah, and gosh, okay. There's two things I want, that come up I want to talk about. Well, one of them is passing. So the the idea of you know you taking these pictures to not to to hide your disability so you can sort of pass as a sexual woman, and then you got the validation there, but then you still felt ashamed inside because you knew you weren't being true to yourself. So and and that's the first time I ever heard the word passing. So can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, I t- I talk a lot about passing, and I'm. Am... <sighs> I'm kind of surprised that um, a lot of people actually don't know what it is but passing has a long history um, it started kind of in the civil rights era where there were some black people who would pass as white so if they were if they could be considered white, obviously they were treated differently than if they were considered if they appeared or co- were considered black um, in sexuality it also like people who are gay that can pass as straight. They may choose not to reveal that they're gay if they can quote unquote pass as straight. If you're a transgender woman, for example, if you can pass as a biologically born or a cisgendered woman, then you're going to have an easier time, say, getting a job, um, being out in the community, things like that. So passing basically means how well you can pass or appear as, Middle class able bodied person.
0: <laughs> oh yeah.
1: As, as normal, quote unquote normal. Um, and passing comes up a lot. Like I've actually, I'm really interested right now, kind of in class, and how people of lower classes try to pass as higher, as middle class. Mm-hmm. Something that I kind of have a background in, being a lower class person, I find that I'll do things differently to try to pass as middle class. And I have been catching myself doing that quite a lot, so that's just kind of another aspect to it, I suppose.
0: So why do you why do people pass? What's the emotion? What's the feeling that you feel inside?
1: Um. Well, for me, uh, it's who's going to give me a job or who's going to actually treat me as a human. Um, when I was interviewing for jobs. I would be, like, mortified to have to walk in front of people because they couldn't, the person interviewing me could not keep the look off of their face that they noticed my disability. Um, And when you need something like a job to survive, you don't want something as, you know, flippant or stupid as your disability and what people think of that to get in the way. Um, Also, you know, I got really used to it, but... Pretty much every time I go out to the grocery store, to the movies, or anywhere, people are, like, staring at me. I never know when I'm going to get a comment. So if I can do whatever I can to hide my disability so I don't have to deal with that, I will do it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Even though I'm coming to terms with it more now to where I don't try to pass as as much. And that's very liberating on one hand, but it's also aggravating because I never know when I'm going to get a question or when somebody's going to say something. But at the end of the day, you know, those comments and those questions, they're, they're really not as bad as hiding myself. So it's a give and take, but I'm glad where I'm at now that I don't have to be so self-conscious. If like somebody sees my brace or somebody asks a question or whatever, it doesn't affect my self-worth as much anymore. But it used to a lot. Like I used to feel like a failure if people noticed my disability or treated me differently because I was disabled so yeah
0: yeah was there ever a time was there like a major breakthrough or a moment where you feel like you've you faced it and got over it or was it a slow kind of progression of revealing over time
1: i can't say that there was really one breakthrough moment um it was kind of just a series of small moments and i think i still am coming to terms with it like the book is is a a thing or just any time that I can have an honest conversation with somebody about it is just another way that it kind of loosens the, the feeling of anxiety that I have around it. Yeah. Um, But you know, there, there's there's tons of things that I talk about in the book, for example, like wearing skinny jeans, like you could always see the braces through the skinny jeans, like the line of it. So I would never wear skinny jeans. And now that's like all I wear. I'm wearing them right now, actually. Um, But, um, I would never do that because that was like scary. Or, um, when I went to my first kink party, you know, showing my scars and just being out there, that was another pretty liberating moment. So yeah, it's just, it's kind of just a a whole process. You just have to kind of keep doing it. Yes. Make it
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and something to make this like, to kind of correlate with some where I my story is, is like, I think it's like small little bits of coming out as who you really are inside, you know, your true self. And when you, you know, you're not coming out in like a huge way for like, you know, someone like me, maybe I'm coming out and admitting that I watched porn, you know, by like saying that like, hey, I'm a sexual person and I've never talked about my sexuality in public or even with my family or any of that stuff. But to actually have this kind of conversation with you is a little bit of coming out for me as well more into my own truth my own authenticity and each time we do that there's a a fear you know and and it's like when in, in your situation like anytime you can eliminate some of your passing and to kind of be more like honest you know and be more real with yourself it's scary but there's like a liberation that happens every time you do it it's like a series of liberations and and i feel like that's this path of authenticity that I'm such a huge fan of for myself like the more authentic I can be is sort of like my spirituality. I, I mean I think I want to say. So yeah, I think that the the whole passing thing is interesting for all of us, you know, we we probably have something within ourselves that we're ashamed to reveal to the public and it may not even be like a big taboo. It's just something stupid, you know, it could be something so trivial. Um Like maybe you're some, maybe you don't have very good teeth or something like that. So you've always hid your teeth from everyone, and you didn't smile or you didn't sing because you don't have, you don't think you've got a good voice. But you know, it's your truth. It's something that you really want to do, Um, but you hide it. So yeah, the way that you just write about it, it puts it, it hits it home in such an awesome, powerful way that makes me feel more empowered to to come out and to do what I want to do, be more who I am. So thank you again for that.
1: Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. And that's the thing, too, is that I think I say in the book that this isn't just something that I deal with the look on my face when I feel like I'm not passing or I'm not doing well enough is the same look I've seen on many people's faces when they feel like they're not doing what they should be doing. For example, when I go shopping with my friends, my girlfriends, and they try on a dress and they see that they they don't think they look good in it, that that kind of sinking feeling shows on their face, and I just wish people, you know, would be able to not place so much of their value on things like that, because it's not themselves that they're thinking about, it's what other people are thinking about them that they're worried about, so, and that can be attributed to so many different things.
0: Yeah, I thought that was an awesome picture that you painted, it was, it really touched me, you know, that the, the look on someone's face when they look in the mirror and they, they think that they don't look good, there's like that moment of disappointment, it's like phew, washes over them and it's so powerful. It's like, oh, I just feel for them. I know, it yeah. I totally know the feeling. Every time I look in the mirror, it's like, sure, there's parts I like, but there's always that, you know, my my hairline or the fact I'm losing my hair or I'm getting gray, which I'm starting to love my gray. I'm, I mean, I love every new white hair I get. I'm like, hooray, I'll look more like the Gandalf the Great or something. So <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. Um, So that's cool. But anyway, so you talked about being objectified and you kind of liked it. But then you felt ashamed because you weren't, uh, being true to yourself. You didn't show your disability. Now in this YouTube video, you kind of revealed your disability, but without the intention of being objectified for it. And then you were sexually, you know, objectified. And you're, so how did you transition into being proud of your disability in a sexual way and like owning it like that?
1: Yeah. Well, first, I'd just like to clarify that
0: I don't have a problem with devotees anymore. Um,
1: right. That's yeah. Kind of something that, um, I feel bad because a lot of uh, people in the disability community are completely split, and I think that people in the devotee community are pretty much one of the most shamed groups of people um, in the se- realm of sexuality, because even in the, the kink community, um, objectifying or fetishizing disability is still seen as really low or, like, evil. So, the, like, I don't want to... Make the impression that I'm not okay with devotees because I really relate to that particular struggle And that confusion of trying to come to terms with your own sexuality and most people that are devotees You know, they're just trying to figure this out as much as as we're trying as I was trying to figure out my sexuality So sorry, I just wanted to throw that out there. Well, yeah, you um, said
0: there was a guy that commented that really hit hit it home for you
1: yeah, he commented, and it was a really simple comment. He's just like, well, if you have any fetishes, you're a complete hypocrite. And I'm like, well, I am, because at that time, I knew I had fetishes. So um, getting involved in the kink community was definitely really helpful for me, because it not only helped me come to my own terms with my own kinks that I had been so ashamed for so long, Um, But it also made me able to relate to other people whose kinks were not my own and to be able to um, to be able to understand that. And once I understood it in that way that, you know, the kink is not bad, but things like consent are. So if you steal somebody's pictures or you try to coerce them into participating in your kink, that's wrong. But just having the kink is not so. I really had to understand the difference between those two. And mm-hmm. once I did, I really was like, oh, okay. So with devotees and things like that, I really made peace with that and could really relate to people who have a a particular kink for disability.
0: Yeah. So how did you get involved in the the kink scene? I think I mean, you had a friend or whatever that got you interested in it, but were you afraid of it or... Tell, um, me, tell me about that.
1: Yeah, because, like, I started having pinky
0: fantasies, like, when I was,
1: like, 13. They really weren't... I think it was probably earlier than that. I remember being in, like, sixth grade, so I was probably, what, like, 12? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of my sexual fantasies had anything to do with, like, sex. They were all, like, getting tied up and, like, getting spanked and, like, these things that I thought were just so weird. And I'm like, I have to be, like, the only one that thinks this way. And it was really kind of frustrating because, like, I think I tell the story in the book about how in eighth grade we had to read, like, this book about a Puritan that gets, like, he, like, does something bad. So they put him in the stockade and they whip him. Mm -hmm. And it made me have an orgasm because (laughs) that's just how whatever. And I was just mortified. I'm like, this can't be right. I took the book home and read it under the covers again because, like, it was porn for me
0: um yeah that was such an amazingly (laughs) revealing thing it's like wow you know our 12 year old self is so fucked up in so many ways (laughs) but it's like you just gave everyone permission to have to be fucked up and it's okay (laughs) yeah
1: and like I just so forever forever I thought I was just like this complete freak Mm -hmm. so in college when I started independently studying sexuality and I found out about the kink scene um I actually started reading about open relationship stuff first but um a lot of times, the open relationship conversation gets tied very closely to BDSM, I guess, because they're both kind of alternative lifestyles. So I kind of read about it, but I hadn't participated in anything. And so I went out with my friend, a really good friend, actually, and we just started talking. And then all of a sudden, she just revealed to me that for like the last three months, she had been going to a kink club, and this was a part of her thing, and she's been doing this, and I had no idea. And she asked me if I wanted to go. And I'm like, yeah, I want to go. So that's how I got involved in the kink community. Um, but as far as kinks go, between me and my husband and, and my writing and everything, I've been experiencing my kink for, for a while. So Yeah. But going into the kink community, yeah, my friend just totally just dropped me in the middle of that. So yeah. that was convenient.
0: Yeah, well, okay. So my relation to that, is like, well, I have not, not familiar. I'm aware of it, but I'm not, I've never gone to anything like that. And it, actually, at this point in my life, I'm curious, but prior to this, I would have been completely sort of mortified to go, like, of course I would never be caught dead ever at a place like that. That was my, my the way I would think about it. Like, and then I, if I knew somebody who was involved, I immediately thought they're a sexual deviant. Like, gosh, they're just so fucking weird. Like, I don't understand them, you know? And because I don't even really watch that kind of porn, but like I, I've seen it, but it doesn't really give me a huge charge. But then in my sort of recent research into sort of masculine and feminine dynamics and um, and to and exploring tantra and and other and other sort of sexual uh, sexual themes, I'm starting to like really get interested in the idea of power play and just the the relationship between the masculine energy and the feminine energy and like the dominance and submission and there always comes up like the 50 shades of gray thing and then there's this thing that says well women have a desire to be dominated and all that stuff kind of really triggered me and feeling like i could never dominate a woman i that feels so wrong to me but the more i start to get comfortable with my own masculine energy and the more I start to get comfortable with an empowered feminine energy, I start to feel like, oh my gosh, like I can see how this actually works when you, when you surround it in love and awareness, this is a, retro, a really incredible, safe and in, inspiring place to play and to explore. And so I'm very curious now, but I would like still mortified. And you talked about how you entered in and you were in your, you know, you were a complete total noob surrounded by these experienced, you know, BDSM um, players. And tell me how you got your first day in the kink club and how that went.
1: Yeah. So I was really excited. So like my friend invites me, you know, and I'm like, Oh, I'm so excited. It's like I put together like this outfit that I think is sexy and it's like this lacy panty matching bra, like the only matching set that I have and like my thigh high boots and I'm like ready to go. So I'm in the bathroom and I see people like they're rolling on leather and they're like, they have all these piercings and they're putting on chains and they have like these elaborate, like these, these, Furniture and these toys that are like ridiculous and I'm like, oh my god, what have I done? I don't know anything and I'm sitting here looking like a wannabe. I don't know Victoria's Secret mannequin I don't know (laughs) and I'm just like nobody's gonna want to talk to me But luckily my friend she was already naked so she just kind of took me around and said hi to everybody and everyone was just so welcoming and um yeah, there were a few people that were kind of snobby like, "Oh, you don't know what you're doing and you won't last or whatever." But for the majority, people were very welcoming. And um
0: Did they actually say that to you or were they just kind of this vibe uh, that they gave you?
1: Yeah, they just they just kind of, you know, that side look and the, then they just kind of went over. It. Like, um Yeah. The, like, I don't think I wrote about this, but one of my earlier one of my first play parties, I went up and I asked if I could use a bench and they're like, "No." And I'm like, oh, okay. I'll just go over here then. Like <laughs> they mind. were just like no. And I'm like, okay, like they were just kinda of worried
0: about it. But um, Well setting setting boundaries, that's what you learn. she told me yeah. set, set a hard no right there.
1: So I was like, okay, that's <laughs> fine. Um but no, and once you get to know people, there are people that, you know, they come to every single play party and they they do everything. But then there are some people that come like a couple times a year. Um, but for the most part, people, they just, they want to show you, um, what they do. Like there's rope people that they just, they love to do rope. So if you show any interest, they will show you, they will tell you, they will bring you in and they'll ask you, you know, do you want to try something? Do you want to do this? Um, and my first play party, I met a gentleman who did electricity play and I was like, wow, like my first day, let's do electricity, right? (laughs) Uh, but he was so kind, and he explained, like, to a T, everything that was going to happen, you know, my consent. He checked in with me, like, are you okay? You know, like, should we go to the next step? Like, he explained everything. And I think that's the thing with kink is everybody sees, like, whips and chains and getting punished and, like, having things, like, shoved in things and electricity, and they're like, this is horrible. But when you, when you say that this is consensual... Then, you know, because, yeah, hitting somebody without their consent is bad, but so is having sex with someone without their consent. Um, The whole point of this is that your bottom or your top is consenting. You're checking in with each other. And if you want the scene to stop, it's going to stop. So that control is something that a lot of people don't see. They don't see those boundaries. They don't see the respect. They don't see the consent. And that's when they think it's so bad. But if you think about it, if you don't have boundaries, consent and respect in a normal sexual relationship, then that's abuse, too. So,
0: yeah, I thought that was outstanding because you made a comparison to like, OK, your average dating hookup or your average sexual situation in the early beginning of a relationship. There's like, what are we going to do here? Uh Well, whatever happens.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's like
0: the end of the discussion.
1: <laughs> and, and that's what I going into the kink. Uh, scene actually really showed me is how bad I was with boundaries in my dating life like when I was dating in college and stuff like that like there was no discussion about boundaries like people would just kind of grope you on the dance floor and if something happened then you kept going and then there are people that would hook up and then like not talk to each other like ever again and like hide when they saw the other person coming like they had no conversations about anything Yet, I walk into this kink club, and the first thing that happens when this guy's like, do you want to do a scene, is we sit and we talk for 15 minutes about what we like and what we don't like. What? <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's, um, if, do you think that's, I, I was telling this to a friend of mine, and he was basically cautioning me, saying like, well, you know, this thirst that you have, for this curiosity... Will likely never be satisfied. So, watch what you get yourself into. It could get to a really dark place if you go into this, like BDSM, or if you explore an interest here. So, it's like, it, to me, it, it, he kind of made me feel like I have this uh, kind of dark curiosity that I have to be careful of looking into because I may get addicted or I may get uh, hurt or damaged or scarred or traumatized or something like that. So, what is your feelings on that?
1: Well, I think that um, as in, as any community, it's made of people. So there are going to be people that have things like power trips, like they just want to be in charge of something. Um, so if you're going to go into the community, you, you need to be smart about it. Um, you know, take your time, get to know people on a personal level. Um, don't consent to doing things you don't want to do. And also, you know, you don't have to do things with the first person that. Comes up to you. You can just go and watch and, and things like that. But as far as like wanting to explore those things, um, I've personally found just from my observations and from my own life that um, trying to repress them is going to do a lot worse for you than experimenting with them. For example, um, in my personal journey, one of the things I'm really into is spanking. Don't ask me why. I don't know why. i gone through many um psychological profiles trying to figure it out i don't know why but i like it at any rate um when i suppressed it when i didn't acknowledge it just the word like in a joke like birthday spankings or anything like that would make me wet and i would be like oh my god i'm being controlled by this thing now that i have experimented with it i can talk about it and sometimes it doesn't even rile me up like it once i have you know it's it's like not a big deal so for me, my kinks were more controlling of me and more um, kind of addicted feeling for mm-hmm. me when I wasn't experimenting with them. But now that I do, I have control over it. I can control when it turns me on rather than when I repressed it, it turned me on no matter what.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's encouraging. And So, yeah. <laughs> that's really encouraging. I mean, I, I totally agree that like knowledge and awareness is going to give you more like just the experience Rather, repressing anything is going to be is going to make it you know that urge is going to act out in some shadow way but if you bring it out to the forefront of your consciousness and you're honest and real about it you can explore with it and then you do start to you take ownership of it as a human being take ownership of that urge that's happening within you that curiosity that you feel and you gain more acceptance and i think you expand as a as a being you know um now the thing that That was interesting to me that, like, when you said that, you know, now it doesn't really have as much of a charge for you, you know, sometimes it doesn't even turn you on. Now, some people who are in the anti-porn community will say, well, that's just because now you need harder stuff to get turned on. And it's just the the downward slippery slope to who knows what.
1: (laughs) Well, and I mean, just from my own personal experience, I don't want anything harder. Like, I'm not... Like now that I found this, I'm not I find that I'm not craving like harder, stronger, faster, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've also discovered that some things are better left as fantasies. Like there are some scenarios that I've tried um, with different play partners that they're never as good as what's in my head. So I've just decided that this will remain a fantasy I have in my head that I can visit whenever I can or want to. But it's not going to work in real life. And so I don't know if um, like some people just can't accept that, like they want it in real life. So they're going to do anything to get it or if it has something to do with something else. um, I can kind of see the argument, because when I was reading erotica, I saw that that was kind of happening, that I would want more exciting stories. So, like, you know, I would read a certain story and it wouldn't satisfy me. So I'd have to go to to the next level up. To be satisfied. Yeah. But.
0: And do you think that's a bad thing? Or.
1: You know, I don't know because on one hand, there's erotica writers that are writing this stuff and they need to eat too, so I'll buy their stuff, right? Like, um, you know, somebody puts it out there, I consume it, and that's perfectly fine. I don't do anything with the stories after I've read them other than feel really excited or have an orgasm. I mean,. Um, but i i guess i mean i guess I, I i don't know because i i have friends that are considered pain sluts they just love pain and they they like they just want to go for the most harsh scenes but their top always tells them no you got to stop so they have a good relationship with their top so their top can say stop you've had enough you need to relax calm down mm-hmm. and we'll start again later um, and for the most part, even the pain slits, they, they acknowledge that, you know, they can't always get what they want. It's going to hurt them. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a tangled argument, but for the most part, from the people that I've observed and that have talked to me, which actually coming out as a sex writer, a lot of people are talking to me now, <laughs> so they <laughs> I feel like they can talk to me. So I'm getting a lot of perspectives, For the most part, I think that um, experimenting is good and most people never find that they feel out of control. I would not say that people can't have problems with porn or with their sexual explorations and things like that. But I think that's with anything. Once you realize you have a problem, you need to get help and you can get help. And there's nothing wrong or shameful with asking for help. But to blame it on the exploration to begin with, I think it's, I
0: don't know, I think is misguided. Yeah, and you also can't listen to anybody else. I mean, you have to listen to your own authenticity, your own inner voice that's telling you, that's guiding you. Because other people don't know your story. They don't know why you're interested in something. They just want you to be safe. And I think that's why they give you this type of encouragement. And, and also their fears and. And, uh, limit, limiting beliefs are going to come into play with their advice that they give you. And so I think it's got to be true for whatever the person is, you know, how does it feel for them? Are they accessing this curiosity because they are trying to, well, whatever. I, I, I don't, I don't really have anything else much to say on that topic other than if it was up to me, I would want to make sure I surrounded in truth, love and freedom, you know, my sort of mantra of, how to explore my curiosity in a safe way without feeling i don't know because i'm gonna i'm gonna end up confronting my shames and those are some of my biggest breakthroughs is when i can break through those so if i feel ashamed about something that's usually something i I should be encouraged to explore to open myself up even more but then also realizing i have the freedom to not do that if i don't want to so if i don't feel safe i don't have to right so how does your husband feel about your uh your kink uh, going to the kink clubs and your you said you're in an open relationship, so how does that work?
2: Yeah, because um, I'm I'm T D and he's not so
1: he's accompanied me to the club a few times. Um, and there are a few things that he was interested in watching. Um, like I did a needle scene that he he helped with. Um but for the most part it's not his thing. <laughs> So part of the open relationship thing was that I wanted to go to the kink club and I want to have kink partners and he didn't. So for us to kind of open that and, and start doing that, but yeah, we have an open relationship and it's probably the most fortifying thing I've ever done. That whole process of opening up, having those conversations that are really hard to have and acknowledging that, you know, we don't own each other. He is he and I am me and we're sharing this life together Mm -hmm. and um, you know, I just kind of say who am I to tell him who he can or cannot have sex with? And some people will say, well, you're his wife. Um, And for some reason I I just don't see it that way. Um, I guess spiritually, I just kind of feel like nothing's guaranteed. And so we need to um, experience things in our lives and For me, having different sexual partners, different relationships, whether they be emotional or purely sexual, is going to help you grow, is going to help you experience more things about yourself. And I want to have those conversations with my husband, so we should experience those things. Um, But at the same time, we're pretty low-key. We don't go out looking for relationships Um, Mm -hmm. at the present moment. Neither one of us, Well, that's a lie, I kind of have a side relationship right now, but... Neither one of us have a long term uh secondary relationship right now. Um, so we're just you know we're not we're not going to make it happen, but if it does, we're not going to not allow it, I guess,
0: yeah, and definitely, I'm sure jealousy comes up and everything like that, as I've been exploring, you know my interest in polyamory and open relationships. And, you know, since I'm now divorced and I've been looking a lot, looking a lot into monogamy as sort of like, not necessarily a reaction to being divorced, but it's like when I follow my, my passion and curiosity and where I'm inspired, it's kind of led me down this path. And I'm starting to be like, oh man, is my next relationship going to be an open relationship? I don't know how I would handle that. And, and I, right now I currently find myself in, in several, in a handful of different intimate relationships with several different women, but none of them are really labeled an open relationship is there, there are sort of various states of intimacy, you know, some of them are more um, emotional, some of them are more physical. And, and some were just more, I think that me as a person, I tend to want to be close to anybody that I'm encountering with, you know, it's like, it's whatever sort of the energy between us wants to happen. And I think with monogamy, you know, we tend to, we create sort of mental barriers to keep us safe, But in an open relationship, it's like those barriers are released and it's a little less safe, but it's more expansive and it has the opportunity for more growth, more intimacy, even because you're more honest about everything. and You're not applying sort of society rules or or even intellectual rules on top of your relationship. But so what is some of the things that you've learned from the kink community and from the open relationship about about love and people and relationships?
1: One of the interesting things uh, since I've been doing kink and my open relationship is that I have better relationships with everyone in my life. (laughs) Um, I have better relationships with women, my friendships. I actually see that I have better relationships with my coworkers because I take the time to deal with my frustrations or try to see things from their point of view. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's really great. Um, When people say open relationship, they think it has only to do with sex. And sex, yeah, that's a part of it. But I'd say 90% of it is other things. Um, It's about being honest. It's about um, resolving problems before they become irreparable. Um, It's about acknowledging the person for who they are, not who you want them to be. And it's also just kind of having a more compassionate eye toward everyone in your life that, you know, we all just want to be happy and loved. And Mm -hmm. there's things we can do on a daily basis to make that happen that I think a lot of the barriers or social taboos of society don't let us do. So yeah, it's because I mean, like how many times have you heard like a married couple and the wife or the husband gets like totally pissed off because the other one went out with their friends for a night and then they come back and they're like, oh, did you have fun? Well, I hope you did because I just want to make you miserable. Like it's like they don't let their partners do even simple things with other people
0: yeah you said something that really uh inspired me was that well i don't know if inspired is the right word but it was very true um how initially what attracts us you know the in the other partner is like their desires and what makes them interesting but as soon as we become in a relationship with them it's like our partner's desires become threats to us it's like they have desires that are not me and right oh my gosh like you know of course they did they they have their own life you know they have desires that are obviously not you but we get in the situation where we just want ourselves to be the only thing that they desire and why does everything have to become a threat why does it why do you think that is
1: you know, I, I don't know, because that's just kind of what I've seen, especially in people that have been married for a really long time, is that any enjoyment, like even a, even just like a hobby or like watching a TV show becomes like a resentment. <laughs> They're like, I see you're having a good time. Well, we can't have that. Um,
0: yeah, it's crazy because I, <laughs> I have exactly I've seen the same things. <laughs>
1: um, but I, I mean, I think part of it is that we have really malnourished relationships. I see people sometimes getting married for the wrong reasons because it'll make the family happy or, oh, we want to have sex, so we need to get married because our church or our family doesn't let us do that. I know a lot of people here in the Midwest do that, actually.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Or, you know, for whatever reason, they get married and then they stay together for bad reasons. And so ultimately, it's a malnourished relationship. So if you're with a person that you don't like, you don't feel that they're respecting you or you feel like you're missing something out of life because you're staying with this person, then of course, you're not going to want them to enjoy things. (laughs) Um, So I kind of think it's more of a relationship relationship. Structure kind of thing rather than like an instinctual thing like that's what people kind of always say They're like oh jealousy or these emotions. They're they're animal instincts But I think a lot of times it's because of what's going on in the relationship. There's not enough communication or respect or Whatever to begin with that's triggering those emotions But that's my theory
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean we all want to feel safe and and we all want to feel loved And also, we all want to have freedom to be who we really are. And in a, in like a monogamous relationship, actually, I don't even want to say the word monogamous, because I just want to say like the typical um, relationship path, you know, the monogamous relationship path, I guess, whatever. It's like you, you have this certain pattern that you're used to being, and then anything that threatens to break that pattern is, is scary. And Yeah, I have, I have a lot more thoughts about it, but they're not really coming to me right right now. But what are your thoughts on monogamy in general? I mean, it's not like you ch- you're out there purposely choosing, I'm going to be in an open relationship because I'm not for monogamy, but it's more like open relationships sort of chooses you based on your, your tendencies, or how does that work?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because when I first learned about open relationships, I was completely against that. Like, I'm like, nope, keep that hippie shit away from me. Um, <laughs> Like, I didn't want it, but I think a lot of that has to do with social things, because at least where I live here in the Midwest, um, the pinnacle of existence is basically getting married. You know, somebody has chosen me and only me. So, like, I am worthy and valuable and we're married, and that's, like, what society says is right. You're doing something right. Um, so when we challenge that it's a huge social thing. Like it's a huge social rebellion. And um so I think sorry, where was I going with this? Non-monogamy. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. What's your feelings on monogamy? <laughs> oh, and...
1: why why I came into it. Um, yeah. But for me, um once I started looking into it, I realized that there was a lot about the monogamy thing that really didn't make any sense because I know many people in my life, family, friends, acquaintances, whatever, who have gotten divorced. And I can tell you that, like, most of them were because of infidelity on some level. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's huge. And also, you know, even when I was head over heels in love with um, my husband, I still got a crush on one of my friends. And I thought that was so weird because I was like, what the hell? Like, I've just... I've just won at life. I just got like the trophy at the end of the game. I have a ring on my finger. Why am I having a crush on this guy over here? Yeah. So I saw these things happening around me and inside of me that I eventually just couldn't explain away. And I decided that basically we're going to be happier and we're going to stay together longer if I actually consider an open relationship. And it's not because he threatened me like everyone's like, oh, he threatened to leave you if if you don't let him have sex with other people. That is so not the case. Um, Neither one of us had had any other relationships when we opened up our relationship. Um, We just I just I just found it it to be really stupid. Like if he ever looks at another woman and has feelings for her that we have to get a divorce. That just sounded crazy. Or you just
0: have it. You have a stern talking to to make sure he never does it again.
1: Yeah, like, don't do it. But then at the same time, how could I be over here reading erotic male-on-male romance novels, like, in bed with him? Like, that, you know. Well,
0: obviously, the solution is to just not do that, Leandra.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I like my male-on-male romance erotica novels in bed. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, eventually, I pretty much had to confront it and say, you know, this is right for us. This is good for our unique relationship. And the thing is, is I don't advocate non-monogamy for everybody. There's mm-hmm. people that I think would never, ever be happy in an open relationship. And I completely agree that they should be monogamous um, because that's right for them. But for us, because I'm just so interested in sexuality and, you know, my husband is just kind of the rational person that he is. And he's like, look, I don't want to throw our relationship away or get divorced because I have feelings or am sexually attracted to another woman. So... Yeah, it just came out from like a lot of conversations and Mm -hmm. a lot of introspection and a lot of books. I mean, when we opened up our relationship, we knew zero people who had one. So that was really scary because I thought for sure no one would ever would ever accept it or we would even be able to do anything about it.
0: Yeah, it's not like you're opening a relationship up on peer pressure. Or because no. it's the trend, everyone's doing it or like there's some no. government conspiracy to break apart the family. So you're just, you know, being manipulated into taking an open relationship.
1: <laughs> right. And, and that was the weird thing is that I I never talked about it to anybody when we opened it up. It was us. And we looked up a lot of resources on the Internet. Um, we read a lot of books. I mean, we were really forging our own path. Like I really felt like a pioneer in the middle of nowhere with like a machete like it was terrifying but it was worth it so
0: yeah and the unfortunate thing is if like for whatever reason if you guys break up then people can say well see open relationships don't work but that never really seems to be (laughs) the case if someone gets a divorce you say see marriage doesn't work it doesn't
1: work yeah and the funny thing is is because I have come out to my parents and to some people in my life and um they always they just they go crazy and they warn me of all these terrible things i'm like where was this on our wedding day like when we got married you like shook our hands and you were like oh we're so happy for you and this is going to be forever and um you didn't warn us about anything that might go wrong
0: (laughs) yeah yeah and the people that do warn you against marriage are usually the ones who've been there done that and had a horrible experience or felt like completely like uh, they sacrificed their identity to the marriage or they were resented they resented their wife so they tell you look don't ever get married all women are horrible you know <laughs> whatever yeah, it's a trap. or yeah. they'll they'll have sex with you until they knock lock you down in marriage and then they'll re- then they'll refuse you and then they'll use it as a currency and all these scary nasty things that are just like oh it's so horrible <laughs> <laughs> but i think in the what makes the open relationship uh work is what I'm attracted to it is the sheer honesty. I mean, you can say that this should be how every relationship should work is the honesty and the communication. But, um, it's like in the poly scene and in the kink and BDSM scene, like you're talking about, there's so much communication about needs and boundaries and like desires and honesty. It's like, okay, so what is it that really makes you tick? I'm here. I want to hear, I'm going to love you for who you are rather than like, you know, to, to shut down someone else's enthusiasm for their like more intricate desires, you know, so, so it keeps the relationship together, but you're encouraging it, encouraging the sort of flowering of each individual person. I really, I really like that and admire it. And I think when we become dependent on each other, say like you get into the, your marriage and you're, like you said, you feel validated, like someone chose me. I am, this is like the most special time in my life. And I have the security that this person will never leave me. So now I can go ahead and get comfortable and settle down and maybe even have a family or all this stuff. But their, their wife is typically, or their husband or spouse is typically the source of their love and their, their, well, their well-being for a lot of, for lack of better words. And then when there's a threat to that source being gone or if there's infidelity, there's a whole lot more resentment. So it's like that source seems to kind of, feel distant to them they get up it's easy to get jealous and defensive but when you start to feel more responsible for your own source of love and enjoyment like you have your own hobbies and interests and those are cultivated and nurtured you feel less resentment for your partner you feel more like you're in an actual partnership where you're allowed to be your true self and so far i've seen that the poly community is really supportive of that
1: definitely yeah um i know you've read the book meeting in captivity by esther perel
0: yeah i love that book but-
1: yeah, she talks about how intimacy actually needs a certain amount of distance. And, you I mean, you don't have to take it to the point of having an open relationship, but I think that's really true. You have to allow the person to be their, their own self to to be able to love themselves and sustain themselves um, on some level before you can actually have a healthy, functioning, compassionate relationship with them.
0: Yeah, she said there needs to be a, a nice blend of closeness and separateness, you know, and I, I love her analogy of the... Say like a child and the child's mother, and when the child feels like their cup is filled up with love, when they've when the mom is giving them love, they feel safe, they feel good and accepted. They naturally want to go out and explore. So they're gonna venture away from the mother and then maybe look over their shoulder a couple of times to make sure mom's still there, still safe, still safe. Okay, let's see how far I can go. And then once I start to feel unsafe, and I have it I'll have a desire to come back home. So they come back home. And then they feel accepted again and then loving. But the mother isn't resenting the child for leaving, but more like holding the space for them to explore. They'll be there when they come back. And there's that, that give and take of the relationship, which I really like. You know, in order to actually have that exploration, you need to feel like you've got some sort of safety and security to come back to. So that's right. that's why I do think I am pro like pair bonding and pro like long term primary partner, you know, whether it's open or monogamous or whatever. But I think for me personally, I do some of my best work when I have a, a stable love relationship in my life. Because when I'm when I don't, I find myself more preoccupied with finding one. <laughs> and, right. And then what but, but some of my best work has come out of having that stable um, base.
1: Yeah. And um, It's interesting, too, because um, there's a lot of I guess there's there's a lot of books written about polyamory and open relationships. And so there's different kind of philosophies, right? Like you should never, um, you should never label one relationship primary and another secondary and stuff like that. But um, for us, I consider our marriage to be primary and that could change in the future. Who knows? But what I found with our open relationship is that it has basically made our foundation and our base that much stronger. So I feel that our primary relationship is like 10 times stronger because we're open and we are closer um, and we have a more need to come back to each other. Cause when we go out and we experience this cool thing, who's the first person I want to explore or, or who, who's the first person I want to tell about it? My husband. Um, yeah. So, you know, when I say that I have a primary relationship and things like that, I know some people in the open community or the poly community don't really like that. But for us personally, that's, the thing is our marriage is is our marriage and so
0: yeah that's good I think yeah like I just love what you said it's it's what's true for you what feels right for you like ultimately you are your own authority not society not your peer group not your mom and dad I, I think that that's really the growing up that we have to do as you know as adults is becoming our own authority and feeling comfortable and safe doing that definitely so well I feel like the um, we've covered quite a, almost all the topics in your book is there anything left out that you want to share you want to talk about
1: you know I couldn't tell you <laughs> um, we've talked about a lot of stuff but yeah um, oh yeah I guess I do talk about um growing up in the Midwest a little bit but that kind of factors into everything else we've talked about so
0: yeah yeah yeah. Well, alright. I think this has all been great. I think it's a very lively discussion. And, um, I think one last tidbit I have to say about the open relationship stuff is, I mean, currently in my life, um, you know, being, being recently divorced and kind of finally starting to date in my thirties. It's like, I can't quite tell, like, the, the women I date, I can tell they're sort of wishy-washy on auditioning me for a long-term partner. And so there's like this awkward feeling of like, well, Why should we pursue this if we know you're not going to be my long-term partner? Because, you know, I'm not interested in settling down again right this second. Um, But how can Mm -hmm. I actually, how can I date and meet different women without this uh, presumption that maybe I'm going to be the one for them? And I think this is where I'm finding myself interested in Polly because that discussion, you can just go right out and say, and it's not going to be a big deal. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, sorry, keep going.
0: Well yeah but then there's like some people that i that i really like and i it's like well gosh i don't know the thing that scares me mostly about getting into a relationship is like sacrificing my freedom you know the fear of missing out and i think that is a big deal right now especially with online dating And there's so many options it's like the netflix of of uh dating and relationships you've got so much choice that as soon as you commit to watching a movie you're immediately excluding every other movie you could potentially be watching at that time <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, well I bet if I make a choice, that means I'm going to have to stop stop looking at the selection. Um, but I think that there's actually a beautiful happy medium in there where you can be honest about that and it's all safe. So I'm in the middle of exploring my sexuality and my current preferences in relationships and navigating those waters. And, I mean then they're kind of complicated and scary and terrifying but i'm continuing to try to stay rooted in what feels right to me and you've been a major help in helping me feel comfortable and confident and curious to continue to follow that so
1: well thank you that's so encouraging especially because i have no idea what's going to happen with this book i mean nothing could happen or i mean my grandma could find it tomorrow i don't know so um it's uh it's all up in the air but i'm really excited to see where it goes so um all of your comments have been so encouraging because it's shown me that I can actually do what I set out to do, which is make connections and help other people. So
0: Definitely. So what's next for you?
1: Well, we talked a lot about open relationships and that's actually the next book I'm writing. I was going to write one about porn, but out of nowhere, like literally last month, my muse just hijacked my brain, not the porn hijacking my brain, but my muse hijacked my brain. <laughs> <laughs> Um sorry I had to do it. Anyway. Um, and so I've outlined a book on open relationships. So that book I've just ferociously been been writing right now. So I hope to get that out probably by the end of this year, but that's my main project. So it's gonna be another pseudo memoir, but it's about disability and open relationships specifically and all of the many ways that those experiences parallel each other.
0: Wow. So awesome I'm really excited about it definitely the muse is the muse loves you because now you're you're doing your part you know you're participating in the co-creation
1: yeah sometimes i wonder about her but that's all right
0: <laughs> ah, right <My> muse. <laughs> all right well thanks again leandra it's been a pleasure i'm so grateful to have you on the show and i totally thoroughly enjoyed your book i just bought your uh a bloom and cursive erotica book it'll be the first erotica book i've ever read so to be interesting. <laughs> oh, that's
1: exciting, and I hope really you like it. It's um, yeah, that was the first erotica I wrote. So,
0: awesome! And you yeah. can get so the listeners, you can go find Trophy Wife on Amazon. Look it up, or and and Leandra, your website is
1: UnlacedLibrarian.blogspot.com.
0: All right, the unlacedlibrarian.blogspot.com. You can find her on Twitter at what's your Twitter handle?
1: Uh, Leandra underscore Bane.
0: Okay, cool, great. All right. Well, that's it. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. Rate us on iTunes if you feel like it. I don't really care. Whatever. (laughs) Just just do it. (laughs) Just do it if you feel like it. Or don't. don't.
1: It's okay. Follow your bliss.
0: Yes. All right. (laughs) Thanks again. Thanks for listening. Bye.